the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Many believers today, maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland at Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't, and uh, it seems... In some ways, as though it was only yesterday, time has gone by so quickly, as you say, and yet uh, these have been great and privileged years, and uh, I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. and. Uh, <laughs> And then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation. And uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented. Uh, 
in uh, the culture here in America, particularly in, uh, and uh, expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, uh, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that, that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> I th- it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we, we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that, that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that Ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they they're not asking the question where is Jesus. They're asking where am I. Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that, uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. 
you know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've, they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and a, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really. Uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus that there is only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved and that is in the name of Jesus and the the, the drift in culture in in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in, and or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ. As our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, you know, I think... Um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And... You know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me, as somebody who's now moved into you know um, my 60s, is to see how many young men, though, 
are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that uh, uh, they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years, and I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity, and of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he, he he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So that mm. we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is, is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which... Uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all, before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. 
Yeah, it's, it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for uh, you know moral rectitude and for for biblical values and so on. But um, you know. I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to, well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is, you know, is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done, and you know, it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually. It really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now, uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for. And I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I, I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I, I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we... If we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize too that, you know, our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended King, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic. Uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes. you've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that uh, cares for, the, for those who are least and last and left out. 
If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Uh, well, I, I think I, if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being a, an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore I have no freedom to believe anything other than what He teaches me, and what He teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures, and I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called, and that then you know impacts. Every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but, but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for? They're silence. Yeah. And, uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't. He he eventually gets to the point. You know, when he asks her to call her husband, and and she admits that you know she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning you know her. Uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example. That we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation, and of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7.30 here on KFAX. And uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland, and what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note. It's not about puffing people up, but you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org 
truthforlife.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, I've always wondered, why would you spend $2 million of your own money to get a job that lasts just two years with no guarantee of it being renewed, pays you only $175,000 a year, and it's all because of your love for country? Yeah, right. We saw recently, if you are viewers of 60 Minutes, the exposing of the insider trading benefits that we saw uh, Steve Croft uh, try to address with our own uh, former House Speaker and uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi here of San Francisco. Boy, she didn't like that conversation, did she? Well, if you think that uh, Steve Croft of CBS was the one that actually pulled the cover on the whole issue of the insider trading deal that Congress enjoys, no, not actually. In fact, well before Steve Croft talking about this publicly, my next guest had, in fact, uh, very much in its topic of an expose book he's written called Throw Them All Out, How Politicians and Their Friends Get Rich Off Insider Stock Tips, Land Deals, and Cronyism That Would Send the Rest of Us to Prison. Peter Schweitzer, thanks so much for being with us tonight on the program. I'm glad we have finally a, a chance to have you on the show, Peter. Oh, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. And I've always wondered, you know, for years, I thought, you know, boy, the amount of money that these guys spend to get this job that barely pays $175,000 a year, there's got to be some kind of a story behind the story. And sure enough, inside the pages of your new book, you reveal just exactly what the story is. Yeah, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at um, politicians and thinking, okay, well, they're getting rich, they're taking money under the table, they're getting bribes. Uh, and certainly there are some that do that. But, but a far more insidious uh, problem is what I call legal graft, and that is their ability to do things that are legal for them to do. Uh, the rest of us would be another story. But that includes things like insider trading, special land deals, uh, getting IPO shares of stock, uh, that really are legalized bribery, and it helps explain in part why so many people come to Washington relatively middle class uh, and leave very rich, or come to Washington pretty rich and leave even more rich. Uh, and the reason is because they get all these uh, uh, sort of perks with the job, as it were, uh, that again, really it comes about because the legal code covers us but doesn't cover them. Well, that's the amazing part of your book, uh, Throw Them All Out, the fact that they have, since they write the laws, they have exempted themselves from things like insider trading. So Martha Stewart, for example, we all know the story. She sold about $230,000 of M-clone shares. Um, She ended up paying a penalty of almost as much, $195,000, for simply avoiding about fifty grand in losses. She did five months jail time, five months uh, home confinement, Confinement, two years probation. She could have faced 10 years, and that was just this horrible crime that she committed. And yet, ironically, let's talk about a California congressman, Daryl Issa, whose tax return in 19, I'm sorry, in 2009 showed that his net worth was about $150 million. A year later, he's worth $295 million. He's, he's managed to double his net worth, Daryl Issa has, Peter, in just one year, and nobody asks any questions. 
Yeah, and you know, the, the, the problem is, is that it's a, a pattern that you see in all kinds of ways. Certainly there are people that, uh, uh, you know, let's say they inherit money or they hit it big, but the problem is, is that they're just, there's a pattern that just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, and, and I'll give you a couple of cases, one Republican, one Democrat, that I talk about in the book. Two speakers of the House, uh, Dennis Hastert, who was Speaker of the House uh, from the late 1990s to the mid-2000s. When he became Speaker of the House, his net worth was around $300,000. When he left less than a decade later as Speaker, it was up to $11 million. How do you do that when you're earning $175,000 a year? Well, in his case, he did something called the land deal. And again, this is completely legal, and even the ethics committees say it's ethical, although I don't think the rest of us would share that opinion. What he did was buy 333 acres of land in rural Illinois, where he's from. A few months after that, he put in an earmark to the federal highway bill to build something called the Prairie Parkway, $207 million of our money to build this highway. You've probably already guessed that this highway just happened to run right along the property that he had bought just a few months earlier. Circumstantial, it's coincidental, Peter, I'm sure. One heck of a coincidence, he was able to turn around and sell that property yet less than a year later for more than twice what he paid for it. So he netted $2 million on that one transaction alone. Uh, to give you another example, uh, that would be Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House that followed Hastert. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, when she came into Congress, had a net worth of around $3 million. Uh, over the next 20 years, it went up 876%, Whoa. which means they were averaging around 24% per year compounded return on their investments. Now, I'm certainly, you know, there are things in there that were just straight and they got lucky on, but one of the things that Nancy Pelosi has been been, uh, very active in doing is getting IPO shares of stock, and this happens to come from a company or companies that have business before the house. And IPOs, for those who aren't familiar, are initial public offerings of stock. If you come in the friends and family round of it, basically somebody gives you stock that you can buy very cheaply, and the day the, that the company goes public, you can double or triple your money. This is something that Visa did when she was Speaker of the House in 2008. She literally netted $100,000 in one day, thanks to the access to these uh, special shares of stock. Um, And then this happened at a time when she was Speaker, and there were two pieces of legislation that Visa did not want to pass out of the House. And guess what? Neither one of them ever even got a, a vote on the House floor. Uh, for most people, that would be a huge conflict of interest and would lead to allegations of, uh, uh, you know, bribery or some form of uh, quid pro quo. But in Congress, this is deemed ethical and legal. Well, let's put this into a context that all of us can perhaps relate to. Were a case to come before a judge, say for an individual to whom the judge was related or a company in which the judge had interests, uh, the judge would most naturally, if he or she is ethical and is following the, the, the rule book for judicial ethics, would recuse him or herself. They would, they would recognize the conflict of interest not in the 
the public interest, and as a result, they would decline to participate, um, uh, granting any sort of judgment. They would decline participating in the case. Uh, but this is not the case when it comes to the United States Congress, because they get to make up the rules, Peter, and they get to determine what's ethical and what's not ethical based on what's in their own personal best interest, not of the country. Am I right? No, you are exactly right. Wow. Uh, in fact, in the case of a judge, if you were to rule in a case uh, involving a company where you owned more than $25 worth of stock in that company, it's a felony. You're going to jail as a judge. Members of Congress do that all the time. Uh, during the health care debate in 2009, you had people on both sides of the aisle, those opposed, those against, who were literally writing amendments, doing things in committees, writing legislation with one hand, and on the other hand, were trading large amounts of health care stock at the same time. Well, didn't I read inside your new book, Throw Them Out, that um, even our current speaker, John Boehner, bought interest in five different health care insurance companies, even as he was publicly campaigning to kill the public health care option? Yes, and again, it's always a question of interesting timing. He literally bought tens of thousands of dollars of stock in health insurance companies three days before it became publicly known to the rest of us that the public option uh, was dead. And, of course, the public option was the idea that the government was going to compete with health insurance companies. So you can imagine when it became known... Uh, the price of all of those uh, stocks went up. You know, to me, we would not tolerate this anywhere else in America. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying a sports athlete on a professional team plays in a game, but also gets to bet on the game in which he's playing. Well, ask, ask Pete Rose how well that worked. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it would not be tolerated in a minute, and yet something far more important which is making laws in our country, uh, that goes on all the time. And literally, there are congressmen that make multi-million dollar bets based on legislation that they are backing and that they've put up in the House. Well, I tell you, when we come back, I'm going to share a little bit of information that comes right out of the roll call newspaper in Washington, D.C., that will shed some light on exactly what's going on back there. Uh, Peter Schweitzer is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, Throw Them Out, How Politicians and Their Friends Get Rich Off of Insider Stock Tips, Land Deals, and Cronyism That Would Send the Rest of Us to Prison. You know what's ironic about this? If you, if you just listen on the surface, Ignore the dollar amounts. Just listen to what's going on, as Peter described. You would think to yourself, the founding fathers would never have permitted this to take place. But in 1776 and in the ensuing years after the American Revolution and the passage of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc., etc., things like Wall Street weren't on anybody's radar screen, IPOs, publicly traded companies, none of this existed. Now imagine fast-forwarding 250-something years. Our founding fathers, I think, at many levels, not only would not recognize this Congress, but listening to the way the Congress conducts its own ethics today would probably look a lot more like the King of England from whom we escaped than any sense of American freedom and Fairness. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Peter Schweitzer, the author, he broke the story on insider trading well before CBS ever touched it. His book is called Throw Them Out, newly published by HMH 
Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. We'll come back to more insider information regarding the insider trading and more. Kind of the story of what your congressman would rather you don't know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Money makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. Well, if not the whole world, at least uh, the world inside the Beltway. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest tonight, Peter Schweitzer. The book, Throw Them All Out. How politicians and their friends get rich off of insider stock tips, land deals, and cronyism that would send the rest of us to prison. And this, I think, is the stark irony behind all of this. I mean, between the insider deals and then the other thing, too, that your book talks about. We all know the name Solyndra. The company is based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've seen taxpayer loans to private firms owned uh, by congressional and administrative cronies, and nobody even bats an eye. If we did this kind of behavior in private industry, you'd all be going to jail. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, there is uh, a huge connection between people who got uh, green energy loans and grants uh, and and the owners of those companies making campaign contributions and raising money, uh, in this case, for President Obama. I mean, if you did that in the private sector, uh, you would have huge legal problems. And this, I think, is is part of the problem. Uh, The issue related to green energy and Solyndra is a problem of when you give political figures the opportunity to pass out billions of dollars of cash in whatever name you want to attach to it, um, they're going to tend to give that money to their friends and political allies. It's human nature. Uh, and I think we need to be weary about this and, and simply create a, a circumstance in our country where we're not going to do this. The crony capitalism is destructive. It's one thing if you have the National Institute of Health, where we have peer-reviewed panels deciding which you know institutions of learning get which grants. That's not what happened here, and I would argue it would pretty much be impossible to set that up anywhere else because presidents have enormous power and authority, and they're going to try to find ways to make sure that their friends are favored. Well, and you know, as we've seen even in the news of recent, you can be a former governor of a state like New Jersey, get a job as the head of a big uh, hedge fund, and then when everything falls apart and they say, well, there's a couple of billion dollars missing, you shrug your shoulders and say, gee, I don't know where it went. I mean, (laughs) this is what's interesting, and so that listeners know that you're not just making this stuff up. Um, I read a recent report, um, Peter, and you might have seen it yourself, in Roll Call, newspaper out of Washington, D.C. And this is a number that, you know, you talk about the 99 percenters versus the 1 percenters. This ought to open up the eyes of everybody. When we saw the decline in the markets beginning back in the fall of 2008, we all know what the country has been through. The same period of time that the average American saw a reduction in their net worth between losses in their 401ks and IRAs, losses in the value of their homes, etc. The same period of time when the public's average net worth dropped between 25 and 30 percent, members of Congress, the elite 535, saw their net worth increase, increase over the same period of time by an equal percentage. So, you know, we're talking about, what is that, a gap of about 50 to 60 percent? They were up by 25 to 30, while the rest of us were down by 25 to 30, and nobody ought to look at that with a jaundice eye? 
Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the chapters I have in the book is on the financial crisis in 2008. And what you find is that there were a series of briefings that the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary gave before the crisis became fully wide known and widespread uh, in the American public to our political figures. Uh, On the night of September 18th, they gave a handful of congressmen, about a dozen congressmen, an apocalyptic briefing that said the Dow is going to go down 20%. We're going to face a major economic crisis. And the Treasury Secretary Paulson, in his memoirs, says that the congressman sat there ashen-faced and stunned. So what did these people do with this information? They got on the telephone is what they did. The the next day, uh, almost all of them went and sold massive amounts of their own stock. So they were able to avoid the losses that we did because they had access to that inside information. There was one congressman who did even worse, uh, Congressman Spencer Backus from Alabama. That next morning, he bought a option that shorted the market. Shorting the market means you're betting, or in this case, knowing that it's going to go down. And he bought a leveraged uh, options trade and literally made $10,000 in that day based on the information he got from the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary the night before. And this is completely legal and it's deemed ethical. That's you know, what's stunning. Well, and the amazing thing too, Peter, I mean, to, to hearken back to one of our more popular presidents, Abe Lincoln, who talked about government of, by, and for the people. When you see that the combined net worth of members of the United States Senate gives them, if we just divide it by 100, uh, they're worth each about 6 to $7 million. Congress itself is worth over $2 billion dollars in net worth. Some of these guys, as we've indicated before, have seen a doubling of their net worth inside of a year or two on a job that only pays $175,000 a year. Of, by, and for the people? Well, it might be for the people, but it's certainly not of and by because these people in Washington, D.C. do not represent the 99ers at all. They are uniquely and almost exclusively the club of one percenters. What I'm curious about is, with all the angst that we've seen that's been, frankly, focused at a lot of weird locations. I mean, they're they're protesting in Oakland. I don't know of the word headquarters of any big financial firm based in Oakland whatsoever. Why aren't we protesting in the halls of Congress? Why aren't we demanding that members of the United States Congress live under the same and rules and, 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 and bylaws that the rest of us have to live under? By golly, if Martha Stewart ought to be held accountable for insider trading, that so should every member of Congress. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, for me, there's a difference. Uh, Somebody like the late Steve Jobs, you know, who became very wealthy, he became wealthy providing goods and services that people wanted to buy. The problem is that I have is people who make large amounts of money through cronyism, through inside deals, through inside knowledge that we don't have. That's the corrupting effect that we're seeing. And I think you see people from uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party who probably we don't agree on a whole lot, but I do think there is this recognition that crony capitalism is highly corrupting, highly damaging. It's taking place in both political parties, and it needs to stop. And that's really why I titled the book Throw Them All Out. It's not to say that there aren't good people in Washington, but 
both sides, everyone has to have a zero tolerance policy for this stuff. Well, you're right. And, 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 and there are good people in Washington. And there's a couple of members of Congress that are good friends of mine. Tom McClintock, who was on just ahead of you, was one of them. But, you know, the interesting thing, as an aside, is we just talk about the overall averages and, and the, the total history of what we see unfolding in Washington, D.C. Uh, I have long wondered, as I've seen friends of mine that have first gone into, uh, you know, city-level politics. They run for school board, city council. They move up. Maybe they become a member of the assembly. They get into the legislature. Eventually, they move into the Congress. And I've seen the slow, progressive uh, corruption of them. And I've seen this. this, What is it about Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway? Is it the water that changes them so that they go from being upright, outstanding, wholesome individuals to suddenly be a bunch of crooks? And now we finally figured out what the deal is. They become thieves because it's legal to. What they would have done on the outside that would have landed them in jail, they can do freely on the inside without reprisals. Ladies and gentlemen, no member of the United States Congress should ever, ever be exempt from the laws that you and I are exempt from under any circumstances whatsoever. And to do so, to allow so ought to be deemed as an embarrassment to this country, and we need to hold their feet to the fire. To which degree I have to agree with Peter Schweitzer. Throw them all out. Let's start fresh. Let's bring some integrity back to Washington, D.C., and let's make Congress live under the laws that it passes for the rest of us. To fail to do so, I think, is an embarrassment to the American experiment, And probably is going to head us down the road to our own, ultimately unavoidable, I believe, self-destruction. Throw them all out the book. Peter Schweitzer, the author, my guest on this segment of Lifeline. Peter, thanks so very much for uh, getting me upset. Hopefully we've gotten a few listeners upset, too. Upset enough to do something. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.